This is the Bartender Journey Podcast. It's the Bartender Journey Podcast number 225. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. This is the podcast that talks all about bartending and cocktails and spirits. Thanks for listening. Well, this year at Tales of the Cocktail, I got a chance to talk with Alan Katz of the New York Distilling Company. I've been involved in food and drink for 25 plus years, and increasingly so over that time period, uh, with a dedicated focus on cocktails. We'll also talk with Jake Berger about their Portobello Road London Dry Gin. But first, hospitality is something that's always on my mind, specifically specific ways to provide outstanding hospitality. For one, the one thing I can't stand is for a guest to leave with, that, with to leave our place without at least one staff member saying goodnight and thank you. I'll jump out from the bar, behind the bar if I have to see, if I'm seeing that about to happen. And a lot of times the bartender's in a good position to see this. Even better if I have time and it seems appropriate in the moment. I'll walk the guests out, open the door for them, make conversation, and wish wish them a good evening. I find that to be such a simple thing that's just a real genuine expression of hospitality. Here's some other tips on hospitality that I've picked up along the way and uh, maybe you could put to use. Your greeting should err on the side of formal. You can always get less formal, but it's hard to get more formal when you've been less formal to begin with. Your body language should always be positive. The drink the guest wants is always the right drink to serve him or her. Give them uh, the opportunity to order that drink right away. Don't force them to look at your cocktail menu if they don't want to. Maybe he's been looking forward to that vodka soda since he sat down at his desk that morning. So give him a chance to order it right away if he wants to. Always be listening. Whether you choose to act on this information you gather by overhearing things as a bartender, well, that's up to your discretion. But always be looking for ways to connect the dots. If it's a way to foster a conversation between a couple of guests who don't know each other or offer somebody a meal who's hungry 10 minutes before the kitchen's about to close, lights, music, temperature, these are the bartender's responsibilities, plus the overall vibe of the room. I might add, what's on TV is your responsibility if you have them in your bar. In most bars that have TVs, you're going to want to have sports on. On, uh, all the time, but watch out when the sports ends at the at the uh, at the after the game and the news comes on that channel. I think uh, you need to jump out there and change the channel quick. The last thing you want is people in your bar to be talking about politics or how sad it is an apartment building burned down. I mean, if you want to do a fundraiser in your bar for local people that need help, God bless you, do it. But let's face it, it changes the energy in the bar. And when that comes on the TV after a fun football game or whatever, you, I mean, don't people come to a bar to have fun anyway? Ask questions. People love to talk about themselves. You can gather valuable information that will help you help your guests. If someone comes into the bar alone, a question like, on your own tonight? I think you need to make an extra effort to make small talk and offer a little extra attention to this guest who's alone. On the other hand, if the answer is no, I'm waiting for a friend, that can help too. Maybe save a bar stool for the expected guests and help pace out the evening for your patrons. To wrap it up, I think hospitality is taking care of people. I'll tell you a story. I was uh, working an event one time, and it was a wine dinner, and everybody came. Wine was included with dinner and even during the cocktail hour, so uh, they weren't coming for cocktails. But I set, I set up a whole bar, was ready to serve, and uh, later, and nobody bought cocktails. <laughs> so, But I would go out and help out on the floor, help, uh, help pour wine, help pour water, even bus tables, whatever needed to be done. And uh, later in the evening, the manager comes over and says, sell, uh, sell many drinks tonight? I said, not a one. <laughs> she said, that's all right. I'm glad you were here. You're so good at taking care of them. That was the best compliment she could have paid me in that moment. So uh, that's what hospitality is to me. So since we're talking about hospitality today, our book of the week is Setting the Table, The Transforming Power of Hospitality in Business by Danny Meyer. This is a great 
book about uh, hospitality and how it, apply, how it applies to all types of businesses, but it's especially helpful in bars and restaurants. He talks about writing a great last chapter. So, for instance, if something goes wrong, go so far out of your way to make things better that people can't help but talk about it. For instance, he tells the story of a woman who arrived at one of his restaurants and suddenly realized that she had left her wallet and cell phone in the cab. The host told her not to worry. Please enjoy your lunch. We'll extend you credit. Pay when you can. Mr. Meyer overheard this and thought, that was good. I think we can do better. He gets the manager involved, and they start calling the lady's phone over and over again until the cab driver answers. The manager asks where the driver is. He says he's in the Bronx, uh, so it's kind of far away. The manager sends someone in a second cab to meet the driver and retrieve the items. Meanwhile, the lady's friend had arrived, and they were enjoying their lunch at the restaurant. By the time lunch is finished, the items have been returned, and all is well. That's outstanding hospitality. Let's do a cocktail of the week. It's the Singapore Sling. This is one of those drinks that everybody's heard of, but doesn't get ordered very often, if at all. I don't think I've had anybody ask me for one. I, we did one for an event recently, uh, a bunch of them for an event recently. But uh, a lot of people have no idea what's in it. I borrowed this recipe from Tristan Stevenson's book, The Curious Bartender, The Artistry and Alchemy of Creating the Perfect Cocktail. It's one and one quarter ounce London dry gin, one half ounce of cherry herring liqueur, a bar spoon of Benedictine, half an ounce of fresh lemon juice, two dashes of aromatic bitters, and we're going to top it with club soda. Uh, we'll build it in highball glass, everything but the soda. Give that a good stir with ice and top it with club soda. Maybe another quick stir and a lemon garnish. All right, let's catch up with Alan Katz from the New York Distilling Company at Tales of the Cocktail 2017. There he is, Mr. Alan Katz. Hello. Pleasure to see you again, sir. Nice to see we you. We ran each other uh, at the airport. which was That was one. That, that was one, and then again yesterday somewhere, I forget it where even. How's your tails going? It's been good. It's been good. I, I've had a lovely time. And, and keeping you busy? Keeping me busy is uh, about par for the course, but yeah. that's why I'm here. Exactly. Well, I'm, I really want to hear about this rye. Honestly, this is the first time I've sampled your, your rye. And Glad it's to hear delicious. it. delicious. Thank you very much. Uh, so the, the, the rye, uh, the, the grain is actually sourced from New York? It is. The rye and the corn are all from New York State, and the rye specifically is from one uh, family farm in the Finger Lakes region. Okay. And for those that might not be familiar, if you were in Manhattan, uh, it would be a solid five-hour drive to uh, near Seneca Lake, the north side of Seneca Lake, uh, which is a wonderful uh, micro-grain belt in New York State. And that's where all of our rye is grown at Peterson Family Farm uh, by a farmer by the name of Rick Peterson. Well, first of all, that's so cool that you just know this guy by name and uh, like this is the guy that makes it. He's an he integral part. Uh, you know, this is he is and his family and his farm are an integral part of what we're doing. Uh, even before the distillery was open and functioning, we had established a relationship uh, with Rick and his family to be essentially what has become our grain farmer, our rye farmer. And our first year of harvest, I believe we harvested approximately 30,000 pounds of rye. Wow. And the harvest is going on now. July uh, is really the, the rye harvest for our part of the world. Mm. Corn is harvested in September. Okay. And then our distilling season is mid-October to mid-April-ish. Well, so, yeah. la so, yeah. so last year, 2016's rye harvest, for comparison to the first, was nearly 650,000 pounds of rye. But, uh, you know what I really want to hear about is, like, how do you start a distillery? Like, how do you do that? Especially, you know, in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> how do you do that? Well, 
you know, there's a generic answer and a very personal answer. Okay. And I'll start with the personal, and if you want more of the generic, I can fill in some <laughs> blanks. But for me, I, I've been involved in food and drink for 25 plus years, and increasingly so over that time period, uh, with a dedicated focus on cocktails and the advent of cocktails as a drink, as a social context, and certainly as a part of uh, American gastronomic history. And I was so enthused and still am so enthused about those different contexts that I started uh, being asked in certain circles to consult in that catch-all for spirit brands, for, for liquor companies. And this was before the advent of the term brand ambassador. And I can't say that I knew exactly what I was doing, mm -hmm. but it was great fun to learn and it was great exposure and it was most of all beyond words magnificent opportunity for me for the first time in my life to visit distilleries and so, so that's how you learn by by visiting other people that's that were how doing I learned. it right? and when you say how do we start ours well i visited specifically plymouth gin distillery oh no kidding and i've been there <coughs> excuse me several times since but the first time uh i took with a group of people, a wonderful group of people, the train from London down to Plymouth in southwest England, and you land in a city. And it's a nice-sized city. It's got an interesting history as a naval port city, uh, historic for the UK. And lo and behold, there is a distillery, a 200-plus-year-old distillery in this urban center. Mm -hmm. And that was the eureka moment for me, for light bulbs to go off and say, now that's really interesting. I've lived in so New York cool. City for 26 years, yeah. and I love living there, and if I was gonna start a business, well, it was gonna be in New York City. Mm -hmm. And so, I wanted to open a distillery uh, in New York, and my fascination was, well, we'll open a distillery that makes gins and rye whiskey in, in a look back and forward at the same time to the spirits primed of the first golden age of cocktails, and now in the renaissance of the second golden age of cocktails that had renewed interest of, of gin and rye. Right. Was that just because that was a passion of yours, gin and rye were passions of yours, or...? Well, I appreciated the history. I grew right. up in Baltimore, Maryland, okay. and uh, well, had, had rye... Baltimore rye is yeah. like a style of rye, well, it which was, is really, uh, sort of, kind of... It doesn't have, you know, a... a the most direct definition, but you know, there, there, there's one distillery, Leopold Brothers, right now that I believe is making an authentic Maryland-style rye in a, okay. a so-called three-pot three chamber still that's fascinating in its own right. Um, but I grew up drinking brands that were named after those Maryland ryes, specifically Pikesville rye, oh, okay. and with my grandmother and my father. And um, as I got into this business. Uh, I was increasingly interested both from its historic standpoint, but also, if I may, uh, indulge a personal heritage. Cool. Well, do you give um, the, the folks at Hudson Whiskey a lot of credit for, what they, for sort of changing the laws? and, and uh... Not just changing the laws, but frankly, they get a tremendous amount of credit uh, for putting a footprint on the map internationally of whiskey from New York, New York State. Right. And... Right. Yeah. I have to, I know them well enough, but I've never asked them this question directly. Mm -hmm. Of all the things they didn't know when they opened uh, Tuttletown in Hudson, New York. And there must have been a long list. And, and good for them for sticking to it 
and seeing through uh, a very unique and specific vision that's not easy to do. No. Well, uh, that wasn't even their vision when they bought the property. Right. That's <laughs> which right. Which is such an interesting story. There, for anybody who doesn't know, there were uh, uh, Ralph. Right, uh, was split. He was um, a rock climbing enthusiast, and he wanted to open like a place where rock climbers lodge, could, yeah. could hang out and yeah. stay and camp. And uh, the, the neighborhood didn't like that, and they... He had to find some other use for his property, you know. So he had never done it before. He had never done it. I said, but he changed a lot. And I give him a lot of credit for, you know, the fact that now at distilleries you can sell cocktails. And, you know, that that's a great help to distilleries. It's right? tremendous. And I, right? I agree with you completely. And in that context, really, I'd say the state legislature of New York and the governor deserves fantastic and tremendous credit because they've been very supportive right. of alcohol in general. Not just distilled spirits, but wine, beer, cider. But they also realize there's tax revenue there, and that's how this whole country is built, if there, you think there about is, it. <laughs> there's tax revenue, but they're allowing us to get yeah. in at an introductory level right. without breaking our back on so, uh, fees. And, and So if you produce under a certain amount of cases, right, there's different rules. It's under right? 100,000 oh, no. proof gallons. Okay. Very, uh, tremendous help, I'm yeah, sure, it's, to, it is. to the small brands, which is great. So, yeah, let's, let's talk more about this, Ryan. You, you just changed the packaging, yeah? We did. We have new packaging, and, and really, in many ways, this is uh, the real launch of Ragtime Rye. We've, we have put into barrels the equivalent of about 90,000 cases worth of whiskey. Mm. And, of course, that's still maturing, and it will evaporate and concentrate and evolve over time, and we'll continue to distill and put more whiskey into barrels. But in our time frame of five and a half years... In the last year and a half, of all that whiskey that we've produced, we have bottled and sold 1,400 cases. So we're really making an effort of specific intensity and resounding patience to let the whiskey <laughs> mature. Mm. And so we have enough now to have an ongoing viable stock. And so what we have now is Ragtime Rye, which is a blend of three and a half, four, and five-year-old rye whiskey. And the, well, the blending process is obviously an art to itself. It is. I agree. And that's been, for the most part, pretty enjoyable. It's a discovery because we're just getting to know our whiskey. It sounds funny, but we have we have uh, three different places where our whiskey is aging. and All in New York City? No, or? one is in Brooklyn, two are upstate in Pine Island, uh, New York. Oh, that's... Is that Orange County? It is Orange County, yeah. New York. And so... You know, depending on which way the warehouse is facing, are there yeah. ventilation? So, well, talk needs. about that a little bit. Like the difference. I mean, you put the same juice in the same barrel Correct. and age it in a different place, and what, it can be completely different. Totally different, right? Or have certainly completely different. It can have uniquely discernible characteristics. Exactly. Right. Um, I was lucky enough to be at a distillery where I was able to sample right out of the barrel. So that stuff that was put in the barrel, same time, one was on the bottom, one that's, was on the top. That's a difference. And they tasted way different. What's interior to exterior, they, they all have different characteristics. But I'm and that's fascinated the by the, the ability of producers like yourself to put out a consistent product where this stuff doesn't, doesn't taste the same, you know, <laughs> barrel to well, barrel. Well, I'll be honest. Let's see what happens. Our ambition, <laughs> is, our ambition on the rye whiskey is, I would say, honestly, relative consistency. But as okay. we get to know... Our whiskey, our barrels, and our warehouses, it's the same as at a, a, a big distillery. They just have more volume. Right. But we'll know the characteristics of where the whiskey is coming from in those warehouses, and we should be able to start blending at volume and achieving some relative consistency. 
If you could talk about um, mouthfeel for a minute, because sure. I think that's such an interesting sort of non-tangible uh, element to your whiskey or, or your cocktail. And, th- and this has a great creamy mouthfeel to it. Um, where, and where does that come from? Pure genius. <laughs> uh, no, it comes from patience. It comes from an exacting commitment to letting whiskey age. The actual production is a physical labor, mm-hmm. and it takes time and energy and focus. The real key, I think, is one, the patience to let this, as a small business in a small distillery, sit in the barrels and not touch it. Mm-hmm. It's not a six-month whiskey. It's not 12 months or 18 months. The minimum is three, and we're finishing it you know, with about 5%, five-year whiskey, as I said. Those are the attributes that lend to the mouthfeel, in my opinion. It's time, it's the size of barrel, and it's ultimately the capacity to have enough whiskey to blend so that you can discern that mouthfeel and focus on those attributes that it's not just the taste or aroma, but as you said, some sort of lusciousness or viscosity that also helps you retain the flavors in your mouth. And for us, uh, I think part of it comes from letting it sit through hot summer seasons. Uh, Because we put whiskey in rather rough. You know, it's a rough new make by intention, knowing that it's going to take three, four, five plus years in the barrel, that the barrel and time will do the work of softening the edges in a circumstance. This is uh, 90.4 proof, this this ragtime array. And... um it, it won't be in the barrel at that, at that proof. It'll be a higher proof, right? Correct. So you're, you're gonna, uh, it goes in the barrel. We have two different proofs, frankly, that we put whiskey in the barrel. 125 is the legal limit. So we have some barrels that have gone in. The whiskey, that is, uh, the new make, has gone in at 125. Uh, and we do other barrels at 115 proof. So you're adding water to it to, to get it down to proof, as we say. Yes. Right? And is that New York City water? It is New York City water. Now, the water... How, <laughs> We, I grew up on it, so I know. We distill <laughs> with New York City water, municipal water. We proof with carbon-filtered water because there are a couple of attributes you would not want in your whiskey or gin or any other spirit. Okay. And those are primarily chlorine, which right. is added to kill any bacteria in the water yeah. system, of course. Yeah, yeah. And you can, you can taste that if you just open the tap. I, I often think that that's the thing that's so great about New York City water. You really don't taste the chlorine, whereas other municipalities, you taste it like... It's uh, true, this is like but, a swimming pool. But it's still it's I'm there. Right yes, here. it's not a swimming pool, but, <laughs> but it's there. It's there. And, and uh, the other is, for as good as the water source is for New York State water, the up, upstate reservoirs, is that it's going through a very old system to get to your apartment <laughs> or your business. Yeah. And a lot of those pipes are rusty. Yeah. And you get that flavor, too. I guess... What minerals or that's correct deposit mineral exactly right and so the the filtration is to get rid of that stuff. Well, delicious stuff. Oh, we didn't talk about the gin yet. Yeah, sure. uh, That sort of that was that was was that the first product you made? We made two gins: Dorothy Parker, of course, and Perry's Todd, a Navy strength gin, and uh, those continue to grow. It's it's exciting time to have a a boutique or craft distillery and be able to have. We finally met, if you will, the ambition of what we want to put out in the marketplace. So gin, you can make and get out out the door fairly quickly. And again, now we can match that with enough rye whiskey uh, in volume and inventory to, I hope, meet demand. 
What? Just for anybody who doesn't know, um, what's the definition of Navy Strength Gin? Navy Strength Gin is an overproof gin designed originally by the British, uh, where uh, essentially, if you spill it on your gunpowder by accident or otherwise, you can still fire off your cannons. It'll still blow up. It'll still blow up. And you could say, <laughs> who cares? But at the time that it was devised, it was essential. It was vital. Yeah. Uh, because the British Navy was paying their officers daily rations of booze. Yeah. Imagine being on board ship, only men, homesick, not really much food, hard tack, that's about it. It's freezing cold. And you're going probably into <laughs> battle, and who knows how that will get killed. Up. And so, you know, to take the edge off there, there was Navy Strength Gin and Navy Strength Rum. And when we launched Perry's Tot in late 2011, there had not been a Navy Strength Gin commercially available in the whole United States uh, for nearly a century. And so we were excited to revive that style as well. And the name, where's the name Dorothy Parker come from? Dorothy, Dorothy Parker is from one of the great uh, uh, writers of the early 20th century, one of the great early feminists of the 20th century, early 20th century, uh, who was a prolific writer. She was an essayist, a poet, a theater critic, a uh, short story writer, uh, but she was also a damn good drinker. <laughs> and I've been a big fan of her writing for a long time, really since I was college age, and it was a way to pay homage to uh, this great uh, American cultural figure. Nice. Well, just to close up, what advice would you give to somebody who was interested in maybe starting their own liquor brands and distilling for, you know, for the first time like, like you did? Raise money and have patience. <laughs> and then you've got to go out and, and learn, if you don't know it, you know, learn, learn from others what, what it is you don't know. Make a list of what you know and what you don't know, and then you can tackle. Yeah, would, you, would you tell somebody to, hey, you know, try to get a job at you know, a small distillery? Yeah, you could you. try and get a job. It's not easy. You know, no. We don't have enough yeah. funds just to hire people, but you could, yeah. if you can afford it, intern yeah. a day or two a week. It's a great way to start. Awesome. Well, such a pleasure Cheers. to see you. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Thank Alan. you. Appreciate it. Thank you. We're all done. More from Tales of the Cocktail 2017. We talk with Jake Berger of Portobello Road Gin. So, uh, Jake Berger from uh, Portobello Road Gin at the distillery and the Gin Institute uh, over in London. Oh, right in London. Yeah. So you make this gin right in the in the in the city. This is uh, produced in uh, a distillery, uh, the Thames Distillery in Clapham. So yeah, right in. Uh, Right, right in London, a, a London, fun. a London dry gin that's actually from London, which is you know, and, a rarity. And, and, and <laughs> yeah, that's rare, right? You know, to, to call it London dry gin, it does not necessarily have to be made in no, London. No, does it? most of it isn't. You know, uh, from the big uh, producers, Beefeat is the only kind of uh, historic producer that's still still bursting in the capital. Yeah, I just learned a lot about gin. I, I, Tristan Stevenson wrote a great book about uh, gin. A, and, a, a dear uh, friend of mine, yeah, a, great, a good book. Great guy, great book, and uh, I learned so much from that book about how gin is made so well tell me how yours is made so ours is a classic London dry style so we start with you know the highest quality neutral grain alcohol that we can get ours is distilled from English wheat okay. and then we redistill it in a, in a 400 litre still called Tom Thumb uh, with nine botanicals juniper coriander angelica root orris root licorice root bitter orange peels lemon peels they're the first seven they're the kind of Classic so, seven botanicals. So, so all that's added for, for, in, the, in the basket. That's no, we put it in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the in the liquid. So we oh, cut, okay. cut the alcohol down to about fifty percent, and steep it for about sixteen hours. We also have cassia bark and nutmeg in there. Our two spices. What was the first one? Uh, cassia bark, which is kind of similar to cinnamon. 
Okay. It's like super cinnamon. Cinnamon turned up to 11. Uh, <laughs> and nutmeg, which gives it a kind of a bit of a warmth, a bit of a, a bit of a heat, almost like nice. a whiskey like warmth. Well, now I want uh, to so try pretty some. Kind of cla- now I want to drink yeah, some. Yeah, please. Uh, <laughs> We've we got a glass. That's so it's okay. a kind that of a... Uh, a fairly oh, uh, traditional recipe. We didn't, you know, we didn't try and reinvent the whole category. We uh, we wanted a gin that uh, kind of respected the uh, traditions of the past. All right. Uh, and, for, and you know, something that felt like it could have been around for a long time, and hopefully, will be around for a long time to come. It's delicious, yeah. but it has a little. Um, I would say it had. It's a London dry, you say, but uh, I, I find it has just a touch of sweetness to it. And uh, maybe that adds the, to the, the mouthfeel, which London I like. dry is, uh, you know, the, the word there, trying to be literally just means no added sugar. Right. Uh, that's part of the regulations okay. for London so dry. So we do have no added sugar, but you do certainly get a little, a little sweetness from it. Uh, we often get people saying that they, you know, we don't really push it as a sipping a sipping yeah. drink, because I don't think sipping gin is really a category. But uh, very often when people try it on their own, they're like, oh, I actually quite enjoy sipping with you know, as a, as a, as a straight right. spirit. So you made this for uh, for cocktails, for we were, yeah, we were, we, were, whatever, we, were, right? we were bartenders and bar operators by, by tradition. Jed, right. Jed up and uh, started the company uh, 20 plus years ago, bar up in Leeds, a Porto, and uh, I was a bartender for you know 20 odd years before we uh, launched the brand. So when we were putting it together, we certainly did have kind of uh, versatility in terms of mixed drinks in mind. So when we were working on the recipe, we'd try it on its own, of course, but we'd try it. Uh, as a martini, as a Negroni, and uh, as a gin and tonic, of course. Right, right. And oh, yeah, I, I could definitely see so this. I, martini especially, just because it's, uh, it's kind of luscious. Is the one, you know, the one place where you can't hide any of the flaws in a gin. That's right, where gin's right. yeah, yeah. it's most exposed. And, uh, so how do you make that transition from bartender to spirits producer? Kind of uh, stumbling blindly in the dark for a lot of it. <laughs> we were, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was an idea that kind of snowballed, really. Uh, we, we, we first of all uh, decided to turn one of our, the spare rooms in our existing bar into a small museum, the Gin Institute, all right. where people could come and learn about gin. And then uh, Jed, off the back of a uh, visit to the Beefeater Distillery with a, friend, a dear friend of ours, Tim Stones, Jed was like, could we get people to actually make gin as well? So we were like, ah, maybe we'll try. <laughs> and from there, we decided to, to, to launch our own brand as well. So from one idea, it kind of snowballed in, 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 into three three projects and you know it seems like a very overwhelming like just from a legal standpoint and you know you got to export this stuff now and it's like there's a lot to it right just the the actual you know the the licenses required for uh for for distilling yourself you know we 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 found up at Manchester's Revenue and Customs and I think they sent us the the wrong forms about three times before we got the right forms (laughs) because back then people really weren't opening distillers you know when when we uh, applied for our license back in 2000 11, I think we were one of just five companies that applied for a new distiller's license in England that year. The year before that, only two companies had applied. And the year before that was when uh, Simpsmith applied for theirs. They claimed that they were the first in 200 years, which is definitely not true, but they were certainly the first in several decades. Uh, so, you know, we were, uh, you know, it, it was kind of a new, new territory. And we weren't, we weren't the only ones who didn't really know what we were doing. Uh, certainly the scene has changed since then. I've, I think, I've I think heard this story before from distillers like, we, yeah, we didn't really know what we were doing, <laughs> but uh, it worked out. You know, a pot still is a pretty simple piece of technology. They've been, yeah. they've been around for a thousand years. So right, exactly. Don't tell, that long. Don't, exactly. don't tell everybody it's easy. But uh, <laughs> I feel like making this stuff is not as hard as, like, like where do you get these labels from and the bottles and the cork and the, you know. Yeah, the, we, 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 we found a, a great guy over in Sweden, an American chap, actually, 
who wasn't actually in the world from packaging design. He was uh, from the world of typography. Most of the fonts that are on the bottle are actually beautiful. Uh, Tom's, on, uh, Tom's on design. And uh, he did a really wonderful job for us. The bottle we chose, you know, as I said, we are from a Barcelona background. It always frustrated me how many products were launching where you know the bottle's got no neck or, or the, the aperture is too there, wide to a, take a pour spout. There's thinking. a certain gin brand that I won't call out and mention the name that's made in America and they redesign their bottle instead of for bartenders and I'm like I picked up the bottle I'm like you redesigned this for bartenders like it doesn't even fit in my hand <laughs> I, I, I like so uh, you know I really appreciate that you 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 uh, take the bartender into consideration for when, sure, when making the uh, bottle uh, and, and then blood do really, you, yeah. do you, your, your labels probably come off pretty easy so maybe we reuse this bottle yeah a lot of people else. yeah we see a lot of people reusing re the bottles it's you know just a, a nice practical bottle yeah, uh, so. it's great. Just for anybody who doesn't know, like uh, uh, London Dry, what does that mean exactly? London so, Dry. So, I mean, lots of regulations there, um, and really, you know, it's uh, the core of it is that the spirit that we use has to be pretty much of the highest grade available. So, we're allowed just five. We're going to get too technical, here, but we're allowed five five grams of methanol per 100 liters of ethanol. Okay. That means the, the spirit that we used to make London Dry Gin is pretty much even purer than the spirit you used to make vodka. It's about as close as you'll get to a completely neutral spirit. And then we can only flavor that spirit by redistilling it with natural ingredients. So we can't use any concentrates, any extracts, any chemicals, any flavorings. We can literally just use parts of plants. You know, it could okay. be any part of any plant. It could be a, you know, a root, a bark, a, a seed, a leaf, a petal, a, a berry, and it could come from a, a fruit or a vegetable or a flower or a tree, but it's right, got to be yeah. something provided by nature. And we have to redistill it with the alcohol. And then after that, the only things we can add to it are more neutral spirit and water just to cut the, the alcoholic strength down. So right. there's no, you know, it's, you, Portobello Rodgin is made from you know, 11 things, nine plants, neutral spirit and water. That's it. Any thoughts of making another product besides gin? We, we, we do some limited editions of the gin. So we've done a few different gins. We do uh, our local heroes every year and our director's cut. Once okay. where we flex our creative muscles a bit more. This recipe was fairly traditional, but uh, yeah. we've done an asparagus gin uh, and a smoked gin uh, as part of our limited edition range. And, uh, and working with a couple of chefs, uh, uh, one from London, one from Italy, we, we use some really uh, incredible flavors. Shiso, shiso leaf, toasted mango, a green olive, timbuk pepper, a Nepalese pepper. That's tasted That's what's kind of cool about gin, right? It's so like, yeah, you, you, know, you, you can put a lot of different the, stuff yeah, in There's it. a lot of flexibility there, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, that's, um, I guess, why you see uh, so much variation in the category. Right, which is fun. You know, I mean, sort of like... Um Sort of like rum in a way, because yeah, I mean, you see you see a lot of variation in, in rum. And yeah, I mean, rum. I mean, the problem with rum is a lot, a lot of that regulation, uh, a lot of that variation is probably due to a lack of regulation. I'd say, right. whereas the London dry right. regulations are pretty tight. So, right. it's more. I think Although it, not enforced that strongly, kind of, right? <laughs> well, the important ones are, I think, and, 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 and are respected by most of them. I don't know what the yeah. situation is like over here, but uh, yeah, I think you know, it's like a, it's kind of jazz. It's about improvising around a theme, right? <laughs> totally, totally. Well, awesome, man. It's delicious stuff, and uh, such a pleasure to meet you, sir. Well, a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Delicious gin there. I'm a big fan of the London Dry style of gin. We were talking there at Kingfish, which is a great restaurant in the French Quarter. That was a hectic day. I did five interviews in four hours at five different locations. <laughs> Not that I'm complaining. It was a lot of fun with a few other events sprinkled in in between, I think. Stand by for our toast. We do a toast every week at the very end of the show. We have one more show about ta- uh, recorded at Tales of the Cocktail 2017. It's a really great interview with Lou Bryson, author of Tasting Whiskey. I hope you're subscribed to the podcast so you can hear 
during my chat with this super knowledgeable and, by the way, super nice guy on the next Bartender Journey podcast. Please don't forget about our tip cup. If this show has helped you out at all, entertain you, or just kept you company, and you'd like to see it keep going, please consider helping offset the costs incurred by producing this show by throwing a little something in the tip cup at bartenderjourney.net slash tip cup. All right, here's our toast. To the corkscrew, a useful key to unlock the storehouse of wit, the treasury of laughter, the front door of fellowship, and the gate of pleasant folly. Cheers. We'll see you next time on the Bartender Journey Podcast. No, you need all kinds of people in this world. Some are nice, easygoing folk to whom nothing out of the ordinary ever happens. Then there are people who have an affinity for excitement. 